going into Edinburgh once for the Buskers Festival. This dude was going around the train trying to steal bags. This had been going on for like two hours. You know, it's a long ride from London up to Edinburgh. And um, just as we were pulling into Edinburgh, he'd made his way down to stand sort of beside the luggage lobby. I sort of spotted this and I'd bungeed all of my stuff together. There was three suitcases and my ladder. So I decided to go down and I walked past him to go into the luggage thing, unbungeed all my stuff. And then as I saw him, he was like standing there waiting at the door for me to come back out of the luggage thing so he could go in and go through the bags. So I went, oh, shit. And I'm just standing on the other side of the door looking at this dude, and he's just looking at me. He was on something, you know, like he had an addiction that he had to fuel, you know. And um, eventually, one minute from going in, I push the button. I go out of the luggage thing. He goes in, and these young fellas that I was chatting to that were going to Edinburgh for the first time, I left them looking after my bag with my laptop in it. And they were like, that guy just tried to steal your laptop bag. And I was like, yeah, I know. Put the laptop bag on my back and I walk into the luggage thing. And here he is pulling one of my bags out. And it's got my costume in it and all my clothes and the money from the previous festival. It was like he'd picked the best fucking bag he could go for, you know. And I was getting a bit pissed off by this stage. I've never been in a fight in my life. Never hit anyone in my life. And uh, I said to him, I said, it's not your fucking bag. And just like shoved him whilst he was holding onto my bag. And he went flying down the luggage thing. He wasn't expecting it. I grabbed the bag and I put it into the luggage compartment in time to look up to get blindsided in the side of the face. And I'm like going like, oh, wow. Never been hit in the face before. Tried the mouth, like, wow, I thought you didn't even knock any teeth out. Next thing I look up to another one coming straight at the nose and the top lip. Boom, he just cracked me in the face again. Oh, and then he like looked at me and he's hopping on the spot with his fists up, ready to go, you know, like, it's all on, like this. Blood dripping down my lip, checked my teeth with my tongue, and I said, well, you fucked that up, didn't you? And he's like, not expecting me to be talking. He's expecting me to be swinging at this stage. And he goes, what do you mean? Like this. And I said, well, you fucked that up. You just hit me in the face twice and I'm still talking to you. I said, it's not your fucking bag. Like this. And then people started coming in because we're going into the station, you know, like cruising in. So he walks over and he stands really rigid by the doors so he can be the first to get out. So I start loading my bags over one at a time while the crowd's coming in from the train, put them beside him and go, hey, watch out, guys. This, like, blood pissing down my face. This guy's a thief? And he's like, shut the fuck up. And I said, no, 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 you are a thief. He's like, shut the fuck up. I said, I'll call you whatever I fucking want at this stage and loaded all the bags over, put them beside him. In the end, walked out of the station, didn't call the cops on him or anything. I thought, fuck, he's learned his lesson. It's just lucky that the ginge didn't flare up. You know, like I could have gone into Incredible Hulk, but in a big red version at that stage. So it's good to know that I can punch you in the face at least twice before I can expect any danger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not spread that one, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters that populate this world. My name is David Aiken. I'm the Checkerboard Guy, and I'm your host for this growing collection of interviews. This time around, we've got a great chat that Eric Amber had with Shay Hooray. Shay grew up near Christchurch, New Zealand, both watching and performing in the World Buskers Festival. This experience not only exposed him to some of the best street performers in the world, but also challenged him to come up with new material and new ways of interacting with audiences so he could keep going back each year to perform. My inclination would be to describe Shea as a showman, because although he went to circus school and knows how the standard street show formula works, there's this sense that his success has come through a sheer force of will approach that both challenges and then endears him to his audience. By deliberately not doing what other people are doing, Shea has carved out a unique street show for himself as the famous rubber band boy, and continues to push towards working indoor venues by building characters and experiences that take everyone in attendance on an incredible journey. What Shea's future will bring remains an exciting mystery, but there's no doubt that it will be filled with more than a few great stories from the pitch. G'day, Eric. Shea! How you been, bro? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, wintering in Canada... Has its challenges. A bit. Obviously, weather being the uh, main challenge. I know all about it, man. I just did a first winter in eight years in um, Barcelona, so it's pretty grim there. Oh, yeah. Winter in Spain. Oh, it was so difficult. Those were the hard days. It dropped down to 18 at one stage. That's <laughs> <bit> Celsius. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, 18 degrees. Oh, we suffered. Yeah. Those were the days. Yeah, I had to buy a scarf. <laughs> so, um, I first met you at Christchurch Busker Festival. Mm-hmm. My comedy partner, Derek, and I were hosting uh, the outdoor stage shows, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you were wheeled onto the stage in a <laughs> wheelchair. Yeah. You were dressed as an old lady. Yeah, Dorothy Duchesne. Or douche. And Dorothy, and you and your friend uh, proceeded to do a little comedy routine. Yeah, Richard Bullock, yeah. It was like a little sketch almost. A little sketch where we made a cup of tea on the back of a bicycle that was moored to the ground with guy wires, yeah. So that was the first time I'd met you. Is that the first time? No, the first time I did uh, the Will Buskers Festival was dressed as a baby running around Christchurch trying to find my mother in a kind of fat suit with a stretch and grow. That was the first time. And then I had a suit on carrying a rooster's head in a cage. But, yeah, that was kind of my first time of death. So you're not a traditionalist? No. I made a rule right at the start. There was a dude called, in Christchurch called David Latterman, right? Yes, I know David, yes gone on to do some absolutely amazing stuff and he's coming to Canada this year on tour. Oh yeah. Doing his show The Battle of the Bastards which is Shakespearean sort of stuff. Even I enjoy Shakespeare when Dave's doing it, you know. I, I kind of understand it more. Okay. Shakespeare for the masses. Yeah, yeah. It's Shakespeare for the dummies. Yeah. Right. So Dave was doing this thing and he, he was like, why don't you have a go at it? I was at circus school at the time. So I made a rule from the word go no unicycle, definitely no juggling, definitely no juggling. A little bit of acrobatics back then when I was a bit more agile. And that was the end. And the first couple of shows, I made a rule. 
I couldn't tell the crowd, but if I did a stock line, I had to blindside myself across the face, like just like that, really hard. And I was quite method on the whole thing, so I was actually thinking of lines and even just the thought of, oh, there's, I could say that, I would just fully cane myself across the face with my own hand and then not explain it. That was how it started. So basically your first show was you hitting yourself in front of the audience. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Just beating yourself up. Well, my first, the first idea, the first premise for a street show was I went down to uh, this place called The Warehouse, which is kind of like one of those stores where you can just get anything. And uh, I found all of this children's inflatable furniture. So what I was going to do was uh, get the furniture set up and then um, and get a person out of the crowd and turn them into a celebrity uh, by interviewing them, kind of like a late show sort of format on the street and turn them into a superhuman on stage. So try and get the thing that it's about the volunteer and they feel really good on stage and they have fun. But the thing with the inflatable furniture was I didn't have a pump because I thought I don't really know how to do a crowd build. So I'm just going to blow it up with my mouth. So I had two chairs, an inflatable flower, a table, two inflatable coffee cups so I started to blow these things up, blow them up, blow them up. And then after about five minutes, I'm halfway through the first chair and I'm realizing, whoa, I'm getting a bit dizzy, bloody butt. The, to inflate all of this stuff took about 20 minutes of the start of the show. And people are sort of stopping. And I'm thinking the crowd's getting bigger and bigger. But it's the fact that I'm seeing double because I've hyperventilated. Then I'd finally get all of the, the furniture inflated and get it set up, and it's looking real good, and people are sort of going, oh, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? I got the volunteer out. This is the first time I ever did it. got the volunteer out, and then a gust of wind came through and blew all of the furniture down the street, for, off the pitch, down the street, through the intersection. It's going everywhere. So I'm running after all of this stuff, trying to gather it back, going, oh, it's all turned to shit. It's, you know, uh, it's all over and proceeded to sort of get it back. And then by that stage, I can't remember how it finished, but it wasn't good. It was a, I mean, successful failure, I think. Then I decided I had to try and do some sort of trick. So what made you want to do this then? Every street performer has an origin story that, you know, the whys and hows of it all. You said you were in circus school. Did you want to be a circus performer? No, I, before I went to circus school, I'd done like theatery sort of stuff and I'd done quite a lot of theatery sort of stuff before I did circus school and then I just worked out that you'd do like six months of rehearsing for a theatre show, not get paid and then how you're supposed to make a living doing that. It was all amateur sort of stuff. So I went, okay, well, I'm just going to start doing some street performing in between thinking that I'll be able to make some cash. I think the first sort of 50 shows were under five bucks, which was um, proved to me that it's not necessarily a money-making experience. It was definitely for the love. 
but yeah, essentially it was just to be able to sort of get by and fund the the other side of it, which was the stage stuff. I actually prefer stage. I have more fun there. Than the street. Yeah, I like the street, but I guess over time it's like you, you learn how to take them on the journey more rather than the short in your face. Start the show by telling them about what's going to end the show sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. So in the end, I'm going to do this in just a minute. And just a, But before I do that, I'm going to do this. But at the end, I'm going to do that because that's what you want to see, which I try to avoid that in my show to this day, too much talking about that. I do eventually, occasionally mention it. So basically what you're telling me is that you saw other street performers, you saw the formula, you understood the formula to a certain degree, it intrigued you enough that it made you want to give it a go, but you were already wise enough to know that you didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. Definitely didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. To be honest, other street shows bore the shit out of me. <laughs> Even my own one. I think it's quite self-indulgent, the street performing thing. I, uh, I'm... I guess I always tried to come up with new ideas, like I'd made a giant toilet one year as a roving act, giant toilet that I sat inside and drove around. And then I put a trailer on the back of it, which was a hand basin, and drove that around with sound effects and stuff. Really expensive prop, that. Doesn't get much of a run these days. Really expensive prop. So you're always looking for weird and new stuff. Really? Oh, yeah, but there's that thing of, like, you're always looking, but sometimes, you know, because you can't just come up with weird, good stuff all the time. It's got to come to you. I can't sit there and go, okay, I'm going to come up with a really good idea. It's impossible. Some people are, are like that. They... They never get good at any one thing because they get bored so easily and they're just coming up with new stuff all the time, you know? Yeah. And then there's guys who are just do one show, they do it really well over and over and over again, they master it. Yeah. And then they just tour that all over the world. Yeah. But you ask yourself, how do they actually still appear like they're enjoying it? Maybe they do. Yeah. True. I can't do that. So at what point did you become the amazing rubber band boy? <laughs> amazing. Do you prefer just the rubber band boy? Yeah, I, I actually started calling myself the famous rubber band boy. Yes, the famous, pardon me. I started calling myself. It was just typing. And then, whammo. You became famous. No, not quite. But, you know... To Joe Public, it's like, fuck, this guy's famous. Great. Let's watch him. I got that off the Spiegel tent, the famous Spiegel tent. And I went, well, if they can be the famous, I'm going to be the famous for a bamboo. Totally just nicked that idea. I'm but, sure they weren't the first to do that. There's good logic in that. There's sound logic there. Yeah. There's definitely logic. And I reckon it was 2004 when I... Um, Started being the rubber band boy, and that was that got come up with by um, 
one day at the pub playing pool, and I was on a bit of a winning streak, like 10 or 11 games into King of the Table, and no one could knock me off. And um, my mate started pinging rubber bands at me from behind the bar. And I was like, I'm not going to let this put me off. No one's going to put me off with this one. Each time he hit me in the face, I just kept playing pool, but I just put it on my face. And the guy that I was playing against started to get pissed off that I was kind of mocking the fact that I was still beating him. And I won the game, and he goes, Oh, next thing you'll be doing this is one of your routines, you bloody clown. He got really peeved. And then I went, and I'd sort of searching for, because I wanted something nice and lightweight to be able to travel with and that no one else was doing. I guess I kind of got inspired to do that by a guy called Daniel Oldacre who was doing a show with straws at the time and each town he'd turn up to, he'd just walk into a subway, he liked the colour of their straws and the size and he'd just nick a handful of straws and then he had his show ready. I was like, far out, man, that is onto it, you know. So this rubber band, so I put them in my pocket the end of the night, I bought a rigger, take away a beer, and then went back home and put a chair in my bathroom and proceeded to finish drinking this bottle of beer whilst trying out which ones were best. And then the following Tuesday, I had a gig, and I thought, okay, I'm going to bust it out and see how it goes. And it, it went pretty good, needed some brushing up. And then I think about five goes later, the routine hasn't really changed since that. It's set. Yeah, it just got set. Yeah. Is this something you're going to continue? You're going to keep doing what you're doing? Or are you in that place where you want to always change? I did in the World Buskers Festival this year, and I've kind of had it up my sleeve for years now. I did the indoor, well, the show that I normally do indoors, it was in an outdoor setting at the Buskers Festival the Keith Prince Golden Goose. And um, I did that this year, and it went really well. Like, we had to add in extra seats, and it was the last three quarters of the season was sold out every night, turning people away. And that was kind of, to me, that was like, ah, this is what I really, really love, you know? Like, something that you can do on stage is stop talking. And you still have focus. Whereas in the street, it's harder to do, just to stop, I think. For me, anyway. It's harder to be on the street and go, boom, and then just have this really intimate moment of just a look that's enough to keep everyone still there. I think the speed of delivery and everything on the street is so much quicker than what you can do in a stage setting. Because you're all constantly keeping people's attention. Yeah, you're constantly keeping people's attention. They can walk away at any stage. They haven't paid. And yeah, and and that's the other thing in street performance that is that whole thing of having a show that's not just about entertainment, it's about getting the money. And that I think in some shows is more obvious than others, but no matter what in street performance, there's that element that's focused at getting the money, which is the 
let's face it, the boring part of the show for the audience and the most exciting part for some of the acts, you know? Well, some performers have perfected the art of asking for it. Mm. And, you know, like some street performers, especially when they're young, they're like, I don't want to have to ask for it. Yeah. And the answer is, well, if you don't ask for it, you won't get it. Yeah, exactly. Do you find the asking for it difficult? When I first started, dude, oh, I was so bad. I, and I'm still not much better, to be honest, but I, my voice used to do like a Scooby-Doo thing when I mentioned the notes. Five, ten. Like I had no conviction in that side of it, which was, you know, like just kind of, I think the hardest piece of the show to lie about. I mean, I had a Guinness World Record before I had a Guinness World Record, put it that way, you know? <laughs> I just didn't say Guinness. So I could bullshit about the fact that I had some fucking record for rubber bands on my face. But when it come to asking for a $20 note, I couldn't say it convincingly. I mean, why is that? Some sort of Catholic guilt inside of you? I don't have any Catholic in me. My parents actually sent me to church when I was, I think I was six years old. They sent me to church, uh, to Sunday school, and they said, if you like it, stay. If you don't, just come home. It's up to you. Like, we don't go to church, but we're going to give you this option. So your parents were uh, pretty open with you. They were, they were like, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you like as long as it's good. <laughs> right. I reckon that's what they taught me. So how do they feel about what you're doing now, about this occupation, about this career? They're sweet with it. They love it. Can you believe that rubber bands and toilet cars would have taken you this far? It's up there with getting wrapped in glad wrap, you know? It's like, who would have thought anything? It's not about the actual thing. It's about the conviction of the thing. You can do whatever you want. It's just about how much you believe in it. If you don't believe in it, then it is just rubber bands. Kind of like I'm a used car salesman, but it's not used cars, it's rubber bands. So convince them that it's awesome, and then it is. In the beginning, whenever you perform, it takes a year or so to really get a handle on things. Yeah. What kept you going? The fact that I, I wasn't ever going to do anything else. You just knew it. Yeah. I wasn't going to do anything else. There was no way. There was no other option. You like making people laugh or you, what is it? What are you getting out of it? I like making people laugh. I like talking to people. But I mean, of course, being the center of attention. You like a chat. I mean, I've spent time with you. You like to tell a story. Yeah. I get up and talk. I'm a get up and talk guy. And my girlfriend would agree with this, that I actually talk up until seconds before I go to sleep. I can fall asleep mid-sentence. So, like, hey, babe, and then... Like that. Just boom. I'm on. And, I'm on. and then when you wake up, you finish the sentence? I wish I had <laughs> that down. Imagine that. Just living the continual life. Which is why I'm confused as to why you didn't become a stand-up comedian slash storyteller. Because you have that natural ability. 
here is a guy that loves to talk, but really he wants to be a silent clown. Isn't there a dichotomy? Like, there's something's going on. I don't even know what a dichotomy <laughs> is. Is that like dissecting? Uh, close enough. Yeah. Maybe if I was in a different city, because there were, there's, there was no stand-up clubs in Christchurch. There was no places to do that. It was one place way back in the day called the Green Room. But apart from that, nah, there wasn't. So it would be a case of me going to a bar and going, can I put on a show? Then you have to sort of pull in some other acts to make a meal out of it. And the more people in the show, the more people you're going to get along because they all tell 20 people and then, boom, you've got 100 people in a little bar and it's a cracking show. The first ever gig I ever did, my first ever solid gig, apart from the World Buskers Festival like that I got sort of by going up to a dude, was at the Wunderbar in Littleton. You've been there, eh? Is it still there? It's still there. I did a show there on Saturday. Nice. And um, I went in there and I was on a mate's birthday and we were having a hell of a time. It was a big day. And the owner of the bar, who was a kind of mohawked skinhead dude with Doc Martens up to his knees called Jace, comes up to me and I was calling myself Sly Rodney back in those days. It was a great name, Sly Rodney. And uh, he said, when are you doing a spot? And I said, I don't know, to the big skinhead and the 32-hole Doc Martens or whatever they're called. I don't know, you tell me. And he goes, next Friday. And I go, great. Next Friday, wow. And he go, I go, uh, how much am I getting paid? And he goes, 150 bucks. And I go, great. Take anything I could at that stage. And then uh, he goes, I go, how long do you want me to do? And he goes, three hours. <laughs> and I was like, great. And it wasn't until the next morning that I went, oh, that's right. All right, next Friday, I've got to do three hours <laughs> of a show on my own. Three hours. I ended up doing four. Oh, yeah. I made this premise of I was making a toast house. So I had like eight toasters across the front of the stage. And in between telling the jokes and stuff, I was just continually making toast and then kind of fabricating this giant doll's house out of toast. The room smelled great. I really loved the smell of burnt toast. How much did you spend on bread? Lots. Yeah, yeah. Did you spend more than $150? Uh, I don't know. I think I got a, some sort of a budget loaf. But um, in the end, it took four hours because I realized that the toasters were not as quick as I wanted. Maybe because I had them turned the timer too long. So then I could have cut down on that, but then I wanted them nice and crunchy so that they would go on this wire frame that I'd made. But yeah, that was it. Slow Rodney making a toast house whilst getting heckled by Russian sailors. Yeah. That was your first gig? That was the first gig, apart from Buskers Festival, yeah. That was the first solo Slow Rodney slash Shea Hooray show. It went great. So the theme in your life is that you're just doing everything. Balls out. Yeah, balls out. Like, not what you're like, oh, what's the show about? I'm going to make a toast house. Yeah. Nothing like I've ever seen before. One thing I like about your show is you always got a dance routine. You've always managed to yeah. write a dance routine into, because you like music. I love music and I love dance. I used to be in a contemporary dance company. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. 
I was the comic relief in the contemporary dance company. Okay. And it was like physical theatre more so, I guess. Because we'd have like parties after we'd done shows. And then I'd take the piss out of all of the other dancers' dance styles, you know, with all the floor rolls and stuff like that after a couple of drinks. And Keith Preen does a dance number. I know. Yeah. Keith Preen does uh, to John Farnham, Take the Pressure Down, which is a hot song. That's a hot song. Yeah. What's the name of the song that you use for your... uh... Tiffany. Oh, right. Yeah, Tiffany. I think we're alone now. That's a great routine. After the blow-up inflatable cheers, the next routine that I come up with was that. It was the first cassette I bought. I, I grew up in a real small town south of Christchurch that was called Geraldine, and we didn't even have a music store. So you had to write to the people, and then they'd send it, and it would take about two months. And the first cassette I got was Tiffany and uh, Michael Jackson Bad. Nice. Yeah. Two hot cassettes. How old were you at this point? Uh... Like eight. Oh, right. Yeah. And I had a crush on Kylie Minogue. Who didn't? Yeah, I know. I had a poster on the wall, RTR Countdown poster, with uh, Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan from Neighbours. Did you get Neighbours over there? We didn't get Neighbours in Canada, no. Right. Well, Jason Donovan was like a bit of a kind of the blonde hair sort of swishing over show pony. It was, all the chicks loved him and all the guys loved Kylie Minogue. So I made out of blue tack, like you used to put posters on the wall. Yeah. A fake nose on him, so he looked really ugly, and then like big eyebrows and like a big fake chin. And then I used to give her a wee kiss on the lips each night before I went to bed and be like, don't worry, Kylie, I'll come over and save you. I actually used to say that to the poster. It was, I, I mean, I had busy imagination. You sure do, and it's taking you all over the world, and that's the beautiful thing about your street show. It's not a conventional show. That's what I love about uh, shows like, say, what Glenn Singer's got, the equestrian horse jumping show. You've got not just the rubber bands on your face, but you've got the rubber band guns, and you've got the dance routine. Have you seen the human jukebox yet? The human jukebox? Is that your new routine? Yeah, so it's a giant belt with a big rubber band on it, and the audience volunteer pulls it back. And then when they let go, it activates a trigger, which activates a drumstick onto it, a splash cymbal. Okay. That's exactly the response I was expecting. It's not about the journey. <laughs> it's about the destination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you're part engineer is what you're saying, street performer slash engineer. Well, I like that. I mean, like, I don't have... Like, the day I got rid of my Samsonite suitcase was what an epiphany, you know? I now have a ladder with all of the compartments built into it and a car horn. And it costs so much more to take it from place to place. But from the start, I just wanted to create a thing that is... Uniquely yours. Uniquely mine. I mean, along the ways, there's been some things that have, you know doubled up that I'm sure, I mean, it's impossible to have a brand new idea, I think. For example, Fraser Hooper sat me down 
after three years of putting rubber bands on my face, he sat me down, we had a cup of coffee, and he goes, you do realize that there's a dude famous for putting rubber bands on his face. And I was like, what? This was big news to me, like quite exciting at the time. And then it wasn't long after that that I first started touring over to Europe and was met by certain people along the way in the first couple of years that I'd copied this dude called Les Bub, who was and um, uh, still is an amazing performer who used to put rubber bands in his face. So until I met Les Bub, I made a rule with myself that I was never going to search him on YouTube. I was never going to look for his website. I accidentally saw one photo on Google of him with rubber bands on his face, but I never wanted to see or have any way that I could be influenced by his work until I met him in person. And eventually I, I sent him an email saying, look, okay, I, this, this is what I do and it's purely by chance. Love to meet you sometime and never heard back. And then eventually I did hear back from him and met him in person. It was actually Misbehave Amy Saunders that introduced me to him at the Roundhouse in London and had a good old yarn to him. By the end of the night, he sort of, I think he picked up on um, where I was coming from and the freakish nature of that two guys had ended up doing this same kind of thing. After that, I watched, after, you know, people going, you're copying this, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people. It was just some people who were kind of the old school in England. And then I watched his actual routine. And I went, well, fucking hell. It's like I kind of wish I'd watched his routine because his version's fucking way better than mine. You know, it was more of a mind-based. He didn't talk at all, whereas I, it's lots of talking in and amongst each rubber band. But, I mean, his version of it is fucking amazing, you know. My version of it in comparison to his, well, I'm just a guy talking shit, putting rubber bands on his face, much the same as... Uh, I use it as the same vehicle as you guys did with the the Glad Rap. It's just a, an excuse to be able to keep talking and keep being funny. Doing what I do was to try and maintain that I had something to be proud of. And then that moment when I found out that fucking hell, like someone else had the same idea, what are the chances of that? And then I chose to go about that in a certain way that I could still lie straight in bed and not be like, I mean, I never liked, ne I've never really liked watching videos of comedians and stuff like that. Or, and in the early years, I never watched movies. And it wasn't until I was about 22 that I started watching movies. Why is that? You know, there's a whole lot of, like, dudes who, who go like, yeah, yeah, watch all of the, the old clown sort of stuff. And, and, you know, the Marx Brothers and the, and Charlie Chaplin's and the Buster Keaton's and the, um, Lauren Hardy's and the, you know, the list goes on of all of these, you know, your Tommy Coopers and, but I never wanted to watch those because I figure it would push my thought process down a different path rather than just come up with it yourself. And then that way, if anyone asked me, oh, you've copied that off bloody blah, I can go, well, I don't even know who bloody blah, blah is, you know? Yeah. So you heard about all these famous people. I knew who they were, yeah, yeah, totally. But as far as actually watching to try and copy that, I had too short of attention span to be able to get through a whole movie. 
I still kind of do. That uh, I've watched the start of so many good movies. I know that about you. Yeah, it's like a computer when it goes into sleep mode. If I stop talking, I'm out. It just the screensaver goes on, and then boom, powers down. I don't need an audience a lot of the time. Yeah, it's like you meet a mate for a beer, go down the pub, and then you know an hour and a half, two hours later, go, hey, thanks for letting me speak at you. You know, and then you catch them next time. You do have a colorful way of speaking too. Where does that come from? Swearing? No, I don't mean you're swearing. I mean you've got a manner, the way that you construct your sentences and some of the words that you use. Your, your lexicon. You've got an interesting lexicon. I, I find that very entertaining. Just what is lexicon? Lexicon is it's your dictionary. Ah, cool. It's it's the uh, the words that are in your dictionary. You know, having a bit of a conversation with you is not just a normal conversation. Yeah. You often challenge my brain with the words that you use because I have to think to myself, what is he saying? What does he mean? Ah, yeah, right. Now I can't understand. I never um, – I've only read about three books. Uh, yeah, if you don't have big words, you use slang. I think lots of the words you use, I just pretend I understand. I guess, I don't know, I, I guess my patter is quite a lot like my granddad's and my dad. My dad says the only difference between me and him is I get paid for it. That's his call, you know. Like at the end of a show, it'll be like another couple of mine there, you know. He's always pulling out the he reckons it's his. So, I mean, that just puts me down as a phony of everything I've said, really, that I'm, I'm copying from the outset, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. It's like I think a lot of it comes down to because you use these big words, right? Not necessarily, but go on. You've got these – well, you've got lots that I don't know. I don't even know how to lexicon until now. Okay, so – if you don't read a lot or watch a lot of movies, then you don't have so much of an external input. You don't get influenced by things. So I guess then you just drive yourself mad going around in your own head. So imagine if you got bored talking to yourself. Just because you're not watching movies and reading books doesn't mean you're turned off. What were your influences and what were the things that you were doing up until the point you started performing? You know, one who opened my eyes real early, Peter Post, in Christchurch, doing a show. And by the end of the show, he had nothing left in his case. It was all on the roof of the shop right beside him. <laughs> right. Just one thing after another. And I was just like, I remember as a youngster just watching and going, what the fuck? Like, how does this work? He's just throwing it all away. So then the only thing left is him. He's, can you do that? Really? Is this possible? Holy smoke. You know, like, the, the dudes like that, that just kind of, the he had all the stuff there. He could have done it. But no, it's actually got a better laugh when I threw it on the roof. Great. 
That's the show I want to watch. <laughs> yeah. That's my guy. Failure. So you like to watch people suffer a bit, a bit of failure? Well, there's, there's comedy in failure, straight up. I'm almost more likely to applaud the guy who drops five balls than tries three times to get it. He didn't get it, and he put him away. Fuck, oh, thank God. You know, like, <laughs> stuff like that. It's like throwing out the the stuff that I want to be, like, I think in a show, you've got to try and surprise people. And if that consists of, especially in a festival situation where everyone out there is trying to perfect it, perfect it, perfect it, then if you can create another angle that is either perfecting something that's just stupid or create a vehicle to be able to just the perfection is the talking, whatever. Let me ask you then, do you consider yourself a comedian or do you consider yourself a street performer or just a clown or a just straight up performer? I had to answer this question actually just yesterday and they said do you consider yourself a comedian a clown or an actor and I reckon I'm a comedian who does a bit of clown with a little bit of acting on the side but that's acting A-C-K-D-I-N-G <laughs> not the real version like the train people do you know right I went and did um, in, the, in um, Barcelona the end of last year a little course with uh, Philippe Goulier, the drunken master. He lived up to his name. I mean, so that's essentially clown. In Spain. Is he Spanish? No, he's French. Ah. Uh. Angry. He had a really interesting technique of teaching clown. Real cutthroat, man. Like, there was a lot of people crying. It was like he was really bringing out the pain of uh, trying to make people laugh. The opposite of street performing. Yeah, because in street performing, you are rewarded by your positive feedback. Yeah. The audience gives you feedback based on what they like. Yeah. So what did Mr. Philippe Gaulier teach you about who you are? Uh, if anything, the biggest thing I took away from it was he made me question myself and why I do it, which is like you do it for years and years, and after a while you stop thinking about that. You just know that you can go out and do that little wink with the eye or the, the odd face that you know is going to get the giggle. But then he, he sort of made you go, okay, so why did you do that? Oh, well, that's, I mean, how am I supposed to answer that question? I don't know. I just do it. He made me doubt. That's what I think the biggest thing I got out of it, doubt and fear. I remember consoling one girl who had come all the way from America to do the course, right? She'd flown from America to Barcelona to do a course with a French teacher for five days. And uh, she was sitting in the subway with her head in her hands, crying. He just sort of melted her down to nothing and she was having nightmares every night when she went home. I kind of enjoyed it a bit more than she did. I kind of relished the, I don't know, being maybe told the truth 
because as you say, in, in street performing, I think it's easy to fall into that thing where you think you're some sort of a legend when in actual fact I'm just a guy who puts rubber bands on his head, you know, like, shit, let's be honest, you know? Have you ever had that interest to be, like, on camera or or is it, are you going to just do this for a while? I'd love to be on TV. Can you see yourself in the late night talk show kind of format? I don't know. I'd like Keith Pring to do his show as a live TV show. In the review after during the Buskers Festival, they said that that Keith Preen should have his own TV show. For the audience that's listening, who's Keith Preen? Keith Preen is uh, he's a bingo caller that does interpretive dance. And he's got a really good mate called Brian the Maverick. He's kind of the crux of all his jokes, and yeah, he's just a bingo caller slash. He's just a people's man. I like the fact of Keith that he's really slow. He just can keep rambling and keep talking. And it's kind of like the audience really enjoys him, but I enjoy being him as well. That whole thing of being able to stop mid-sentence and just just have a wee smile, you know, and keep going. Is Keith Preen an older version of you? or? Yeah, he's kind of is. Because, you know, there's that day that we're all going to end up doing where we're had it. And let's face it, most street performers like a drink. So I can see myself finishing up in some bar wherever I choose to stop, sitting down the end of a bar with a beer in my hand, and then some young unsuspecting fella comes in and I make him sit beside me whilst I buy him a beer and tell him how good I was. That's going to happen one day, eh? Unless they create like an old people's home for street performers, where everyone gets a little room with a soundtrack going, yeah, oh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you did? You know, I I think that's what's going to happen to me. They're just trying to convince everyone how good I was. (laughs) Sad old bastard. But that time hasn't come yet. you still got some shit to do. Yeah, I've got some shit to do, but I was wondering about trying it early and then coming back into the fold. I could try that, just do a year of that. Go retire for a year and then come back. Yeah. (laughs) What are you up to? It's just a practice run for getting old, and then I'm going to whip back into it, do another quick eight years, tight eight years, do all (laughs) the best stuff, Yeah. and then, then I'll be back and I'll have this one licked when I come back to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Licked. <laughs> Great lexicon. I'm going to wrap it up. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for asking me to do it. See you later. Yeah. Okay, take care of yourself. See you, bye. Bye. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these stories. We throw a ridiculous amount of time into the production of each episode, then put them out into the world for free because we feel the stories and examples that are shared provide the sort of inspiration capable of elevating the craft of street theater to a higher level. If you like what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. 
Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go into the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. Now, before signing off, I just wanted to leave you with a quick snapshot of exactly what's at the root of Shea Hare's motivation in both performance and in life. What makes me tick is having fun. Because there's always been this whole thing that I've kind of thought is like, some people are like, oh, I don't eat meat. And it's like, well, you just created a rule there. Because if you get stuck in a desert and the only thing you've got to chew on is a rat that you've found, you're going to start eating meat pretty quick at that point, aren't you? Yeah. The less rules you put on yourself mean that you can hang out with a wider variety of people. You can do whatever you want. Was that good lexicon? On behalf of myself, Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, Associate Producer Magic Brian, Eric Amber, who both captured this interview and created the preliminary edit, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs>